Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the Song of Songs. Open your Bibles to the Song of Songs. It's right after Ecclesiastes, right before Isaiah. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you or the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 594, page 594. This is the greatest of all songs. To say Song of Songs is like saying King of Kings. That means the king, the greatest of all kings, the highest of all kings, or Lord of Lords, the greatest of all lords. The Song of Songs is the best of all songs, the greatest of all songs. And the greatest of all songs from, of all time, really, is a love song. It's a love song about marriage and marital bliss. So the title of the sermon is Celebrate the Love of Marital Bliss. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to read the whole song. And we are going to read the whole thing, not right now, but as we go through the sermon, we're going to read through all these words that come from God. Let me read verse 1, and then we'll pray. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would give us wisdom beyond our personal capability. We pray that you would help us to understand your word, that you would enlighten our eyes and soften our hearts and strengthen our ears, that we might hear and feel and see your glory. We pray, Lord, for the proper application and understanding of your word here in this book, one of the hardest books to interpret and understand. And then we pray, Father, for everyone in different stages of life, married and unmarried, for different reasons of all kinds. We ask that this word would ultimately be a word of grace and hope and love that leads us homeward to your glorious rest above. None of this is possible without your Holy Spirit, so help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As Christians, we want to celebrate and enjoy all that Christ teaches in his word. The Great Commission tells us to obey everything Christ commanded. We actually trust that everything Christ commands and teaches is good for us. We understand that God has created us male and female. He's created us to be male and to be female and to act as male and female. And he created us male and female beginning in the Garden of Eden in a place with no sin No curse, no death, no decay, no brokenness. And back then, there was beauty and joy and intimacy and innocence in Eden. To use the words of Genesis 2.25, which I think runs through this whole song, they were naked and not, what? Not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. The difficulty for us, the challenge for us is that the world and Satan and our own sin and our own brokenness and our own past and present sins and brokenness have distorted and deformed our thinking and feeling and acting as male and female meant to interact even in the marriage bed with our spouses. We have been tricked. We have been programmed to think in sinful 
and wretched ways about marital intimacy. We've taken it out of marriage to think about intimacy apart from marriage, and that has corrupted this song or our thoughts. And so, early theologians in church history have emphasized the reproductive function of intimacy while arguing for a suppression of the needs for intimacy. So I'll quote here from a research brief. Aquinas saw, I'm going to change some words here just to make it more delicate and discreet with our children. Aquinas saw intimate intercourse as a duty alone. Anything beyond this was immoral. He writes, quote, For if the motive for the marriage act be a virtue, whether of justice, that they may render the debt, or of religion, that they may beget children for the worship of God, it is meritorious. But if the motive is lust, if the motive is desire, it is a venial sin. Catholic moral instruction following the tradition of Thomas Aquinas cautioned that marital relations of husbands and wives could only be justified as a matter of duty, certainly not as a matter of desire. St. Jerome believed that a husband was guilty of adultery if he engaged in unrestrained, intimate passion with his wife. Despite having had a lover at one point in his life, St. Augustine came to, see, to view sexual intercourse as a form of animal lust and should be tolerated only for redu- reproductive purposes. Early in the 6th century, Pope Gregory the Great wrote that although marriage was not sinful, conjugal union cannot take place without carnal pleasure, and such pleasure cannot under any circumstance be without blame. So the church historically has corrupted even the, the view of conjugal union. The Puritans marked a shift in these ideas along the lines of the Song of Songs. Now, is this song too crass? Some of you have read through this. Is it too crass? Is it too crude? Ephesians 5, 3 and 4 says that our talk and our speech ought not to be crude in speaking of the things, that the, the way the world speaks, even in regard to sexual immorality and things along that line. So is this song too crass? The words are discreet, they're delicate, and they're poetic. And um, they're not using any terms here that are found in any human anatomy textbook. They're poetic. But the passion still is off the charts in this book. Why? The Bible teaches that rock-solid commitment in marriage protects and produces white-hot intimacy. Rock-solid commitment in marriage produces white-hot intimacy. White-hot intimacy strengthens and reinforces rock-solid commitment. Now, traditionally, Christians often hold on to what? what do we, what's the thing we emphasize? Rock-solid what? Rock-solid commitment. And we don't speak much about white-hot intimacy. So we talk about what is marriage? It's between man and woman. And what about divorce and all the sins of sexual immorality? And we, we talk about those things rightfully, and we need to. We emphasize that as Christians. We're known to be the sticklers on the LGBT agenda these days. And tr- surely that's part of what, the, what Christians ought to be holding on to is the rock-solid commitment of marital intimacy, and only in the context of marriage. And yet, that's what the Christians do. What does the culture do? The culture, on the other hand, they celebrate white-hot intimacy while rejecting rock-solid commitment. Christians emphasize rock-solid commitment, Culture emphasizes white, hot intimacy apart from marital commitment. 
Bethany Baptist Church, you must do both together in ways that cancel out neither one, but celebrates the erotic freedom in publicly and privately appropriate ways from rock-solid commitment. One commentator writes that this book offers ecstatic freedom from which Proverbs provides appropriate boundaries. So Proverbs gives the boundaries, right? Proverbs 1 through 9. Proverbs 5 talks about enjoying your wife, and yet there's all kinds of warnings against adultery and immorality in the book of Proverbs. That gives the boundaries. Phil Riken said, adult theme, this is adult themes under parental guidance. Another commentator wrote, erotic poetry, this is erotic poetry set within the boundaries of the marriage bed. So we need to learn how to talk about these things. And Song of Songs is a great gift. Now, the problem's not just on the outside of learning how to talk about it. The problem's actually on the inside. We are ashamed and we are embarrassed to talk about this type of intimacy and pleasure between male and female. We have been duped by Satan and the culture and our own sin and brokenness. And Song of Songs is given by God to break us free to speak about these things without being sinfully crude and improper. So, let's give it a shot. There are different approaches, interpretive approaches to this book. Some say it's an anthology of a bunch of different songs. I don't think that's the case because what does verse 1 say? What's the second word? The what? The song of songs. The what? Song. Is that singular or plural? Singular. This is a song. This is not a bunch of different songs just kind of mashed together. This is a single song. So there is, there is unity and coherence to this singular song. So I, I reject that as an anthology. Some people say there's a, there's a shepherd boy theory that there's a woman, a shepherd girl, and a shepherd boy who are in love, and then Solomon is the king who tries to get the shepherd girl to be part of his harem, and so she's trying to state a true marital love against Solomon. That's another view. And I almost went that way yesterday. I was on the ropes, but I didn't. I don't go that way. You might... Uh, Song of Songs 811 is the best argument for that view, and I don't know how to understand 811. So there's actually a lot of things I don't understand about the song. Ask me questions at the back, I'll say I don't know a lot, and I think, but I'll do my best. I see this as Solomon as, as the husband. Some people say this should be interpreted as allegory between Christ and the church or Yahweh and the people of Israel, not about actual physical marriage between a husband and wife, and I just don't think that's the case. I think it might point to it, but, that, but it is talking about marriage between a husband and a wife. All right. And not only that, one other thing to understand about this book is you have to read it in canonical order. In the Hebrew canon, it goes Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs. What's the last chapter of Proverbs? Proverbs 31. What is it about? The what? The godly woman. The woman who fears the Lord. And then Ruth is about who? Talking about two women who fear the Lord, Naomi and Ruth. And then you get the Song of Songs, showing what this godly woman looks like in terms of marriage passion. So this is not a mistake. It's put, that's the Hebrew order. We have, the, we have a different order in our, in our Bibles, but um, that's the Hebrew order of the Bible. So what about Solomon's failure? I mean, this guy was not the model of marriage faithfulness, was he? he had, do you know how many wives he had? Seven hundred wives and 300 concubines. Solomon, so, so 
what about his failure? He married for political reasons. He committed syncretistic idolatry with his wives, and he indulged in the most extravagant polygamy that I know of. Scripture portrays his warts and balances his portrayal there in 1 Kings with him here, idealizing the wisest and best way to approach and celebrate marital love. All who listen to this song can get wisdom from Solomon, even though Solomon did not always heed what he says here. Maybe he wrote this in the beginning of his life and fell away, or maybe he wrote this at the end of his life reflecting and realizing what it should have been like. Nonetheless, there's lessons for us to learn here, okay? So, this is primarily addressed to young people, often not married people, and those who are maybe engaged. So, I see uh, new, some newlyweds here from our, in our church that I, I didn't go over the song. I probably should have did something in the song, but um, it's good for, for engaged couples, and it's good for married couples. So what if you are not married right now? Is this a waste of time? It's not a waste of time. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is what? God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness. So this is profitable for you even if you're not married currently. Now, not all texts in the Bible focus on your situation, but there will be application to your community life, your premarital life, your postmarital life, your purity, and your relationship with God himself. If I was preaching a sermon on children obey your parents in the Lord, you'd say, what am I doing here? I'm not a child. Well, there's still a lot of relevance for you as parents. There's a lot of relevance for you as a member of this church who's a member with parents, even if you don't have any kids, right? There, there's, there's application in the Bible for everyone, even if it's not directly addressing you in your situation right now, Amen. all right? So here's the main goal. Let's get to work now. What's the main goal? Here's the main goal. The main goal of this book is for you to... Or, I'll say it this way, pause and ponder the passion of this married couple. Pause and ponder the passion of this married couple so that you celebrate the ecstasy of marital love. You don't have to be married to, you don't have to be married to to apply this. Pause and ponder the passion of this married couple so that you celebrate the ecstasy of marital love in your marriage and in other marriages. Okay, I'll say it one more time. Pause and ponder the passion of this married couple so that you celebrate the ecstasy of marital love. All right, let's go through the book. There are four movements in this book. It begins with desiring. There's a desiring for each other before marriage, like a courtship, a a pursuing in marriage. There's a desire for each other. That takes you all the way up to chapter three, verse five. And then at three, verse five, um, from three, five, all the way to five, one, you have the wedding. So you have desiring, They are desiring each other, then they are wedding each other, and then after wedding, they have reconciling because they get in a fight. Marriages don't get in fights, do they? Not us. We're Christian, right? No. There's reconciling. There's a fight or there's a conflict and there's reconciliation. And then after that, there's a sealing at the end of the book where it kind of concludes and seals marital love. So there's a desiring before you get married. There's the actual wedding. Then there's the conflict resolution. There's the resolving reconciling, and then there's the sealing of marital love, okay? Desiring marital love, wedding marital love, um, reconciling marital love, and then um, sealing marital love. Let's look at the first one here, desiring marital love before marriage. So look at verse, there's two meetings here between the man and the woman. So chapter one, verse two, I'm gonna start reading. Oh, that he would, this is the woman now. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating, Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his 
chambers. The woman longs for the man. And the man, then the young women respond, we will rejoice and be glad in you, young woman. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. So they're encouraging her. They're celebrating her marriage, much like you do when you go to weddings. You celebrate other people's marriages and you get that smile across your face even though you're not the one getting married because there's something about celebrating the love of, of others. And then the young woman talks to her man in verses five through seven. It is only right that they adore you, she says to her man. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. This is not a statement of her ethnicity. This is, why is she dark here? Because of what? The sun. So she got, a, she got suntan and sunburn. Perhaps. And so she's like, oh, there's, you know, I'm desiring, like, there's blotches here, so don't stare at that. Verse 7. Tell me, who, tell me, you whom I love, talking to the man that she wants to marry, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Why should I hide? She's like, where are you at? Where are you hanging out at? I want to be hanging out where you're hanging out at. Do you remember that before you got married for those who aren't? Married yet, you just want to know their schedule. You know where they are, and you're, after class, you know exactly what class they got out of, and you're right there waiting at the door, and, you know, it's just this, this idea of wanting to know where they are and just desiring to be where they are. That's what she wanted to do. She didn't want to be like one of the guys hiding, with, hiding in the flocks with the flocks and other people. She wanted to be there with him. She, and then it goes on in verse 8 here. Verse 8. If you do not know, man speaks now to the woman, most beautiful of women, Follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you accented with silver. He's attracted to her. She attracts him with her scent. She has him on her heart. And, and uh, right here in this next passage here, and um, she finds that he enriches her. Listen to this in verse 12. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. So he's like a necklace right here. A sachet. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of En Gedi. There's this idea of henna blossoms. So there's this, this um, fruit. There's this bounty. There's this blossoming of, of, of plant life in the vineyards of En Gedi. A very lush and... Um, green area, fertile area. The man responds, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are doves. He compliments her back. And then she compliments him and speaks of their bed, probably looking forward to the marriage bed. She says this, how handsome you are, my love. How delightful. Our bed is verdant. It's green. It's ready to go. The beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are cypresses. I'm a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. So she says, I'm, I'm a lily among all these other lilies. And then he takes it and he goes a different direction with it. In verse 2, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among many young women. I like that. She says, I'm a lily in the valley. And there's all these lilies in the valley. Yeah, you're a lily in the valley, but you're the only lily. You're, you're among, among a bunch of thorns. Verse 3, she, she responds, like an, like an apricot tree, among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with 
love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots, for I am, I am lovesick. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. Young, so, so there she's, she's talking about her delight in him. She embraces him. She wants to be with him. She wants to be held by him. And then she breaks, and this break is going to come three times in the book, four times. The fourth one in the middle is kind of a little bit different, but similar. She calls the young women who are listening, all the unmarried now listen up because it's the unmarried people. Young women in particular, but she gives a, uh, an oath. Young women, take an oath now. Here's the oath, verse 7. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, I place you under oath by the gazelles and wild does of the field. Now you're listening, right? Because this is an oath by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm serious now. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. There it is. This love is so powerful. I want to be with him everywhere. I, I just want to be where he is. And this love is so powerful. Young women, do not open this at the wrong time. Don't open it prematurely. It's hard to put back in its box. Do not stir up love before it awakens, young women, young men as well. You've got to be careful here. You're playing with fire. So they long, so some application here, long for each other. You should long for each other if you're married. The woman, notice she's assertive in the relationship as well. This is not a woman who's kind of being improper and pursuing a man. This is in the context of probably engagement or things along that line where there's already a stated um, leadership from the husband that, or the fiance that he wants to marry her. But notice once that's happening, the woman is assertive in the relationship as well. They compliment each other. They praise each other. They're encouraged by their love for each other. And they instruct younger ones from their love. They, they are assuring each other, they're encouraging each other, and they're securing each other in their love. They enjoy the embrace and physical display of affection. We look down on PDA, physical display of affection. And I even confess myself, I feel like, you know, a little weird by it sometimes. I remember when my wife and I first got married, she would say when we're at church, like, why don't you put your arm around me? And I'd just be like, oh, like, I'm pastoring right now. Like, you know? And she's just, she's just like, no, just like, you know, just other, other couples you know, show affection like that, just arm around, like, why can't you do that during, you know, and so, you know, I'm realizing that Song of Songs, it just helps dismantle some distortions that you hold in your your heart and mind. So look forward to the marriage bed honorably. But second here, so that's their first meeting. Then here's the second meeting, picking up here in verse 8, 2, 8. Here they're going to connect and they're going to continue to look forward to marriage. They're going to call for protection. They're going to anticipate marriage. And they're even, they're even going to have a battle of loneliness. Look, look at verse 8. Listen, my, listen um, the woman continues, my love is approaching. Look, here he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My love is like a gazelle or a, or a young stag. See, he's standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. So she, he can't quite come into the bedroom yet. He's kind of looking in, but he can't because they're not married yet. Okay, uh, verse 10, my love calls to me. Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one. For now the winter has passed. The rain has ended and gone away. So that's springtime now. There's this imagery of springtime. The blossoms appear in the countryside. The time of singing has come, and the turtle dove's cooing is heard in our land. We don't understand this here in Southern California because it's almost always springtime and hot. But in other places with four seasons, they understand the beauty of the seasons and how it goes from winter cold and no leaves on the tree to this lush, you know, um, just fertile um, green and colors everywhere. And that's the symbol here. He's, He's saying it's time. Verse 13, the fig tree ripens. The blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one. 
So the man's calling her, let's go out. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the crevices of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. The woman responds, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in bloom. What is that about? Their vineyards, they're, you know, it's symbolizing their love and their person. Their vineyards are in bloom. It's time for them to get married. But what threatens the vineyards? Foxes. So what does she want the man to do? Catch them. Protect our marriage. Protect our relationship. Protect the things that are going, the sin, if we're applying it, the sin and, and Satan and the world and others who might be a threat to our marriage. Catch the foxes. There's, there's a responsibility there for men. And there's a responsibility, responsibility there for women to call the men out to lead and protect their women. So she calls for guardianship in the relationship. And then verses 16 and 17, she's probably reflecting or longing for their future union. She says this in verse 16, My love is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn around, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the divided mountains. The, the cleft of the mountains, alluding to cleavage even when saying the, cle- the cleft of the mountains. In my bed at night, so now some people say this is a dream here. If it's either a dream or she's just on, at, at home in her bed at night and they're not married yet, so they're still separated, right? So what do you feel like when you're engaged and you're home in your bed and your, your fiancé is at home in their bed? What do you feel like? Here's what she feels like whether it's a dream or in reality. In my bed at night, I sought the one I love. I sought him but did not find him. I will arise now and go about the city through the streets and the plazas. I will seek the one I love. I sought him but did not find him. The guards who go about the city found me. I asked them, have you seen the one I love? I had just passed them when I found the one I love. I held on to him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house to the chamber of the one who conceived me. Speaking of marriage, so maybe there's a dream um, imagining marriage and longing for him. And then she charges again. Young women, here's your oath. Young men, unmarried, here's an oath. You are placed under. I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Hold up. Hold back until it's time. Because once it's here, it's going to sweep you away like a flood. And so here's the narrator. Or, I'm sorry, before we get to the narrator here. So she instructs the young women again. So for fiancés and those who want to marry, clearly state your affection. Call and expect the man to guard the relationship. Women, guard the relationship, the premarital relationship, by expecting the man to guard the relationship and rebuke him when he doesn't. Look forward in purity before God to marriage and union. It's not wrong to look forward to the marriage bed. Just look forward in purity. Men, Husbands and those already pursuing marriage, clearly lead and call your wife or fiancé to follow you. Members of our church who are older and been married for many years or are past the days of marriage in that regard as a widow or widower, instruct younger couples and singles on the blessing and the dangers and the power of love. Young people need older people to teach them wisdom. That's why I prayed that I would only have sons. I was a youth pastor, and I see young women stirring up love before it was time, and it freaked me out, quite frankly. And I prayed that I would only have sons because 
once that love is awakened and they're not listening to the older people or the older people are not investing in their lives, they only invest when it's too late, when they've already awakened love. Now the older people come in to start rebuking them. Where were you for the last five years? Instructing them and building relationships with them and communicating with them so that by the time they get to these temptations, you have a, you have a meaningful relationship so that your words have weight rather than, oh, now, you're, now that they're in love, now you're going to come in and say something to them. So I want to encourage you, and, and our church members, older members here, you do a good job of this. I want to encourage you to keep doing it even more, to get involved in, the, get involved in relationships, meaningful conversations with other members so that your words have weight when they need to wake up. Don't awaken love prematurely. So what's the main goal here? So this is all desiring. This is the desiring thing. Pause and ponder the passion of this married couple so that you celebrate the ecstasy of marital love. Let's go to the second one. We've got to move on. Wedding. Okay, so now you got the wedding. Here's the, the wedding and the wedding night. So chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, scented with myrrh and frankincense, from every fragrant powder of the merchant. Here's the narrator speaking. Speaking of the... The processional, here comes the husband, he's come to the site. Look, Solomon's bed surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty men of Israel. Here's his entourage. All of them are skilled with swords and trained in warfare. Each has his sword at his side to guard against the terror of the night. Nothing like a royal wedding, huh? You got guards here, and you got the carriage here. And then verse 9, King Solomon made a carriage for himself with wood from Lebanon. He made its posts silver, of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior is inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Go out, young women of Zion. He's about to enter into the wedding. Go out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon wearing the crown his mother placed on him on the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. Turn on your TVs. Look, watch the wedding. Get a, get a glimpse of the king as he is entering into the wedding site. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 1. And the man is now speaking. And he's going to, this is probably in the wedding, okay, during the wedding or maybe before the wedding. I would say probably during the wedding. He's going to start complimenting her with vivid imagery. Look at this. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. And it goes from head to toe. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Try that. Don't try that with your wife. I would not recommend it. It was powerful then, but there's, there's different ways of doing it these days. But, um, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Not one of your teeth are missing. That's, that's a big deal back in that day with, before modern dentistry, just so you're aware, right? Uh, verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet cord and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate or your cheeks are like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David constructed in layers. Doesn't mean she has a really long neck. A thousand shields are hung on it, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. He compliments her with vivid imagery. What is this imagery of? Mount Gilead, animals that are bountiful, scarlet cords, pomegranates, tower of David, um, fawns, gazelle, lilies. What does that remind you of? Does that remind you of anything? If not, we'll continue. I'll pick up on it in a little bit. Verse 8. He calls his bride now and calls her to come with him. 
from a foreign land. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amunah, from the summit of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of the lions, from the mountains of the leopards. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. Here it is at the wedding. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any balsam. Your lips drip sweetness. Like the honeycomb, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments are like the fragrance of Lebanon. So here he is complimenting his wife or his fiancée. They're about to get married at the wedding. And then at some point here, I guess the wedding is pronounced, and they're pronounced husband and wife, and then you get to 12 through 15. and Or wait, maybe right before it here. This is before the pronouncement, perhaps. My sister, my bride, the man says, you are a locked garden a locked garden, and a sealed spring. What does that mean? If it's locked and sealed, then he does not have what? Access. He's not allowed. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with, its, with choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all of the best spices. You are a garden spring, a well flowing, a flowing water streaming from Lebanon. But you're locked. You're, you're this bountiful garden, and you're locked and sealed. But now they get married. So they get married. And now that they're married, verse 16, here's the woman's response after their marriage, after their wedding. Awaken north wind. Come south wind. Blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. Locked and sealed, no more. Unlocked, unsealed, and the invitation goes out. Come to your garden and eat its choicest fruits. And so this is the wedding night. And in 5.1, here's the consummation of the wedding. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. What does the man say? I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. There he is in the consummation. He eats in the garden. He, linger, he enters the garden. He lingers there. He enjoys myrrh and spices, milk and honey. And then there's an exhortation from the narrator. Eat, friends. Drink. Be intoxicated with caresses. Be intoxicated with caresses? Drink? What's that the imagery of? Getting what? Getting drunk. So even one of your own poets has said in a popular song these days. I feel like a hopeless romantic. I can't help falling in love. I fiend for love. I want it. I crave it. I just can't get enough. I know I'm drunk on love. Drunk on love. Nothing can sober me up. It's all that I need. Love is, marital love is like getting drunk and intoxicated. And the encouragement here is to be drunk. Not with alcohol, not actual drinking and alcohol. Uh, Not in terms of drunkenness. It's not a sin to drink, it's a sin to get drunk with alcohol. But the, the, the imagery is be drunk, be indulgent. Don't hold back. Don't drink in moderation when it comes to your marriage bed. Eat, drink, be intoxicated with caresses. Have your fill. So application, if you're not married, wait for marriage. No fornication. I remember one Christian, professing Christian, telling me, well, a girl has her needs. As I'm trying to call this person repentance, she just says to me, a girl has her needs. There, are, there could be needs, but you still have to wait. 
It's not the same need as the need for air. So you could, you could, you could serve, you're not going to die by obeying the Lord. So, um, yeah, a girl has her needs, a guy has his needs, but you still have to wait. Your greatest, your greatest need is to love and enjoy God. For married couples, praise your spouse. Now, notice this. I don't know if you noticed. What was the description of the wife like? Did you notice what it was like? With the gazelles and the bountiful fields. and Anyone pick up on it here? All right, let me give you the clue. Chapter 5. I mean, I shouldn't talk as if it's all obvious to me. I've been studying this all week. That's unfair. So self-righteous and arrogant of me. I apologize. Please accept my apology here. Um, so 5.1 says, look at 5.1 again. What does, he, what does he eat? His honeycomb with honey, and he drinks his wine with what? Milk. Milk and honey. Milk and honey. What does that sound like in the Bible? The what? The promised land. The land flowing with what? Milk and honey. He's describing his wife like the promised land. The great desire to get to the promised land, to paradise, where God dwells, back to Eden, back to the garden, back to the promised land. Why does he compliment her with saying your hair is like a flock of goats? Because what's the highest value for a man who loves God? To get back to the promised land. The promised land is my greatest treasure, and you are like the promised land to me. That's that's what's going on here. There's eschatology here. There's the end times here. There's the, 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 the Garden of Eden and the future new heaven and new earth. Marriage is like a paradise. So enjoy the consummation on your wedding night and use eschatological language of the glory of God in your marriage. You use, you use language to complement your spouse to your highest values. Our values are so low that we never complement our spouses with heaven because we don't value heaven the way we ought. But if you were if you were consumed with heaven all the time and you could not wait to get to the new heavens and the new earth, if that consumed your heart and mind all the time, that would flavor your compliments because that's where your values are. So understand the consummation. Even non-Christians understand this. Another one of your non-Christian earthly prophets have said in a song recently Never had much faith in love or miracles. Never want to put my heart on the line. But swimming in your water is something spiritual. Listen to this. I'm born again every time you spend the night. Now he's talking about fornication. They're not married. But he's talking about physical union here. I'm born again every time you spend the night. Because your love, we'll just say love instead of the other word here for the sake of it. Because your love takes me to paradise. Your love takes me to paradise. And it shows Because you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long, for too long. Yes, you make me feel like I've been locked out of heaven for too long, for too long. This is not a Christian. This is Song of Solomon language. The consummation is heaven. It's paradise. And this artist or the writer, whoever wrote the song, gets it. It's true. Genesis 2.25, in the garden they were naked and what? Not what? Not ashamed. Proverbs 5 says enjoy your marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 says you own each other's body, and so make sure you get drunk with love together. So again, we pause. The main goal is to pause and ponder the passion of this married couple so that you celebrate the ecstasy of marital love. Now we get into a fight, okay? 
So you get married, you're on your honeymoon, right? You have expectations. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't go quite the way you expect sometimes, right? You want something more and the other person wants to do something else. And there's disappointment and it's so new to you, you have no bearings, there's no maturity at all. And so you're literally like, your emotions are literally flung across from, from north to south and east to west here. And so there's conflict here in the marriage. So reconciling, this point is about reconciling. Look at chapter 5 verse 2. The woman says, I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. A sound, my love was knocking. And what does he say? Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my hair with droplets of the night. Let me in, he says. And what does she say? (laughs) Verse 3. I have taken off my clothing. How can I put it back on? Now, what she means there is not um, in terms of desire. It's like, I already got ready for bed. I'm in my bed clothes now. How can I put them back on and get to the door? I have washed my feet. How can I get them dirty? I don't want get to off, get off my bed to come and open the door for you. So then my love thrust his hand through the opening of the door. He's trying to open the door. And then my feelings were stirred for him. So then what does she do? I rose up to open for my love. My hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So she's ready now. She wants to open the door. I opened it to my love. But what happened in verse 6? My love had turned and gone away. My heart sank because he had left. That happens sometimes, you know. One person is willing, the other one's not, and then it switches and can't get on the same page. And it leads to conflict and separation to some degree. So what does she do? Notice what she, so there's the conflict, but how do you reconcile here? When you're not on the same page, and this applies to all kinds of reconciliation, not just in terms of uh, marital union, but ha- you're going to learn some principles here about how to reconcile fights. What does she do? Does she just sit back and sulk? No. I sought him, but did not find him. I called him. He did not answer. So now she's on a quest for reconciliation and reunion. That's what you should do when you're in, in fighting. You're on a quest to reconcile and reunite. The guards who go about the city found me. They beat and wounded me. They took my cloak from me, the guardians of the walls. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find love, my love, tell him that I'm lovesick. There's the other oath. Now, what does it mean that the guards came and beat her up and bruised her? So there's two explanations. One is this is probably a dream, like a nightmare, a nightmare type fight, and then it turns into, you know where nightmares get really weird? I don't know if you know about your dreams. Some people don't remember their dreams. I remember a lot of mine. But they get really weird and just kind of crazy. And so she turns a corner. She gets beat up by a bunch of guards. Maybe that's part of it. If this is referring to the church in Israel, um, which um, I think it does in some ways secondarily, um, it's like the, it's just like in the story of God in Israel, God marries Israel. They make a covenant at Mount Sinai. They celebrate in the promised land, but then they disobey and there's conflict. And then the prophets come like the watchman, to rebuke Israel. Here in a very similar way, there's a rebuking because the woman has um, not cooperated with her husband in, in, this, in, in their marriage here at this point. And so verse 9, let's continue. What makes, one, what makes the one you love better than another, most beautiful of women? What makes him better than another that you would give us this charge? Why, why are you after him? And her answer here. Now notice here, one more time, she's going to compliment him and describe him. What do you notice about this description? My love is fit and strong, notable among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as 
a raven. His eyes are like doves beside flowing streams, washed in milk and set like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, mounds of perfume. His lips are lilies dripping with flowing myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is an ivory panel covered with lapis lazuli. His legs are alabaster pillars set on pedestals of pure gold. His presence is like Lebanon, as majestic as the cedars. His mouth is sweetness. He is absolutely desirable. This is my love and this is my friend, young women of Jerusalem. That's why I want him. What does that sound like? Rods of gold, cedars, pillars, the temple. That's right. Another image of the dwelling place of God for communion with God. The land and the temple. And the land and temple get mixed together when you read Revelation and other passages in the New Testament. But yeah, the temple. Again, she compliments him based on her highest values, the dwelling place of God. Communion with God is her highest value. And so she compliments him along that line. Moving on now, the young women ask, um, where has your love gone, most beautiful of women? Which, is why, which way has he turned? We will seek him with you. And then she responds, she knows her husband, so she knows where he is. Verses 2 and 3. My love has gone down to his garden, to beds of spice, to feed in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my love's, and my love is mine. He feeds among the lilies. So where is he? In his what? Garden. Who's his garden? He's married now. Who is his garden? She is. So where is he? So he's knocking Wants to go to the bed, so to speak. She leaves, or then he, he misses her, or she eventually wants to. He's gone. She goes out looking for him. And then they say, hey, where is, where is he? I know where he'll be. Where is he going to be? Right back on their what? Right back on their bed. In other words, he's not sulking in the corner, making her try to, trying to make her feel guilty and initiating. He is back there right where they're supposed to be meeting. She knows where he is. Because she's actively seeking him. She's on a quest to find him. He is wanting to reconcile with her as well. When you're fighting, you need to both be seeking reconciliation if you're going to reconcile well. Okay, so what does the reconciliation look like? Um, well, so, so he's waiting patiently and purely. He expects conflict. Uh, so, I mean, he waits patiently and purely. Husbands, wives, when, you, when your spouse is in sin, you are to wait patiently and purely. Your spouse's sin is never an excuse for your sin. That's a dragon. That's a serpent. That's Satan getting in your marriage. When a, when a spouse's sin justifies your sin, you are already caught. Reconciliation is a million miles away at that point. Your sin is always your fault. Your spouse's sin is their fault. You can never justify your sin by your spouse's sin, ever. So what do you do instead of sinning in response to their sin? You wait patiently and purely. You seek reconcil reconciliation patiently and purely. You expect conflict and you actively seek to resolve it. You remember, he says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. You remember your value, that you own each other. You are each other. You're one now. It's like fighting yourself. Is there any victory in fighting yourself? Punching yourself in the face? If we saw someone getting in a fight with themselves and punching themselves in this church, we would think they have a problem, right? It's not normal, but that's what a lot of married couples do. They punch themselves in the face as they try to attack their spouse. That's what they're doing. All right, so 6-4 now. So now they kiss and make up. Here's the kissing and making up. 6-4 all the way to 8-4. 
Here's the man. He says, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, lovely as Jerusalem, awe-inspiring as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they captivate me. He still loves her. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down from Gilead. Your teeth are like flock, a flock of ewes coming up from washing, each one having a twin, and not one is missing. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and young women without number, but my dove, my virtuous one, is unique. She is the favorite of her mother, perfect to the one who gave her birth. Women see her and declare her fortunate. Queens and concubines also, and they sing her praises. He says that she's perfect. Now, for those of you who say, well, he's lying. Is anyone really perfect? I mean, isn't, doesn't, isn't it true that nobody's perfect? How can you say your, your spouse is perfect? This is speaking in poetic hyperbole, but you need to learn to speak in poetic hyper, hyperbole about your spouse. It's not wrong. She's perfect to me. She's the most beautiful of all women. Is that an objective statement that um, in God's eyes and in everyone else's eyes that everyone's going to agree that your spouse is the most beautiful of all women? No, but that's not the point. You're not speaking for everyone. You're speaking for who? Yourself. She's most beautiful to you. You're the most beautiful of women. You, you look at your spouse and you say that. And that's true for you. It's not lying. It's, hyper, it's hyperbolic, but it's also honest. It ought to be. She's perfect to me. He's describing his emotions and feelings, not those of other people. And so, there's a lot of love songs. I'm not going to quote another one here. I have too many. i got to move on. But love song talking about you're perfect just the way you are. You don't need to change anything. It's not true in one sense. Of course, everyone needs to change. Everyone needs to grow. But in another sense, yeah, you're perfect just the way you are. You are, you are the perfect woman. She remembers that as, as they reconcile. And so in 6.11, she comes down. She says, I came down to the walnut grove. So now she's looking for him. I came down to see. She remembers his words. He loves me. We have to reconcile. He loves me. I love him. We're together. I got to go find him. I know where he is. So she comes down to the walnut grove to see the blossoms of the valley, to see if the vines were budding and the pomegranates blooming. I did not know what was happening to me. I felt like I was in a chariot with a nobleman. So she's looking for her husband, and then she's all of a sudden swept up in a what? Chariot. She's seeking her husband. She gets swept up by her husband in a chariot. Come back, come back, Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may look at you. Shulamite there is like Solomonite. Shlomo is another way of saying Solomon. Shulamite is a Solomonite. His wife, how you gaze, the man says, how you gaze at the Shulamite as you look at the dance of the two camps. Chapter 7, verse 1. The man continues, how be- now he goes from foot, feet to head. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, princess. The curves of your thighs are like jewelry, the handiwork of a master. Handiwork there again, that is clearly in a, an allusion to the temple with the handiwork there. Your, mar- your, your, marvel, your navel is, like, is a rounded bowl. It never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools in Heshbon by Bathrabim's gate. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. Looking toward Damascus. Again, it's not literal there. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. The hair of your head is like purple cloth. The king, a king could be captive, could be held captive in your tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasant. My love with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like fine wine. They reconcile she was looking for him. He was where 
we're waiting patiently. He sweeps her up. They, they reconcile. They forgive each other. And they continue their love fest. They're complimenting of each other. They're adoring of each other. They're praising of each other. The woman continues, flowing smoothly for my love. Talking about the fine wine. Gliding past my lips and teeth. I am my love's and his desire is for me. Come, my love. We reconcile. They kiss and make up. Let's go to the field. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my caresses. The mandrakes give off a fragrance. And at our doors in every delicacy, both new and old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breast, I would find you in public and kiss you. And no one would scorn me. Apparently that's okay for brothers and sisters to do. I would lead you, I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranate. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. So there it is again, the reconciliation, kissing and making up and being reunited as husband and wife. And then the charge again to the young women, young men, singles. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you. Do not stir up or awaken love until when? Until the appropriate time. Married couples, older couples, older members of our church, everyone, this is your memory verse. Say it to the young people again and again. Just, just put them under oath. Do not awaken, awaken love until it's time. And then, so that, that's, now we get to the climax of the book. Here's where we're bringing this to a close. We get to the climax of the book, the last 10 verses here. And in this climax, in a book about marital bliss and climax, it's really powerful here. After the instruction here of reconciling, we get to the last part, which is sealing. So we had desiring, we had wedding, we had reconciling, right? And now we have, lastly, what? Sealing, the sealing of marital love. What does the ceiling look like? Here's the five through seven is the climax of the whole book. These are the most powerful verses, okay? So pay attention here. Eight, five. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on the one she loves? Well, it's the wife, right? Who is this? Now, when it says leaning on the one she loves, it has a suggestion here, maybe, of them being elderly now. You know, losing a little bit of strength and leaning on the one she loves. Maybe it's that, maybe it's not. But, but this just applies to all, all couples. Whether you're a young couple or an old couple, um, this applies. So the woman says, I awakened under your apricot tree. There your mother conceived you. There she conceived and gave, birth, gave you birth. So here's the climax, verses six and seven. Set me as a seal on your heart. So I'm the woman who's married. That's who she is. And then set me as a seal on your heart, she says to the man as a seal on your arm. Why? So if it's a seal, there's an idea of permanence, right? Ownership. You seal someone, you own them, you lock them to everyone else. So set me as a seal. We are one. Let's lock this in. Let's, let's be committed. Divorce is off the table. We're locked in. It's, not, it's a non-issue. It's never an issue. It's never on the table because we are locked in. We are sealed. Set me as a seal. Set me as a seal on your heart, a seal on your arm. Why? For love is as strong as what? Death, it's certain. Is death pretty strong? Does death take out everyone? Yeah, death, there's, there's no, I mean, we have no 
personal power over death. It's just the strongest thing besides, obviously, Christ's resurrection. Amen to that. But, but um, love is as strong as death. It's certain. And jealousy is as re- unrelenting as Sheol. That's the place of the dead. So love is strong. Jealousy is unrelenting. It keeps coming. So you have um, the certainty. And then you have this love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. So love is white hot. It's a flame. And then verse 7, a huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. So here's the climax. Here's what love is. Okay, just look at it here. This is what love is. If it's sealed, love is permanent, right? Love is permanent. Secondly, if it's a white hot, if it's a flame, then love is white hot. There's heat to love, right? Thirdly, a huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. It's a love that endures trials. Does your love have trials? Does marriage have trials? Yes. But this love, water can't quench this love. And then lastly, it, it, um, it ultimately doesn't give into temptation. Not that it never gives it a temptation, but ultimately doesn't give it into temptation. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. He knows the value of his love, and it's worth more than everything. Um, let me read the rest, and then I'll, I'll bring this thing to a close. It says here, I want to go back to 5 through 7, but for the sake of time, I just need to read through the rest of this, and I'll go back to 5 through 7 to close. Our sister is young. She has no breasts. What will we do for our sister? These are the brothers on the day she is spoken for. So here's a single young lady, their sister. If she's a wall, we will build a silver barricade on her. If she's a door, we will enclose her with cedar planks. Brothers are to guard their what? Sisters. Brothers in this church, guard your single sisters. Married men in this church, guard your single sisters. Verse 10, I am a wall and my breasts like towers, so in his eyes I have become like one who finds peace. That's Solomon's name. Solomon has owned a vineyard in Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for his fruit 1,000 pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard. The 1,000 are for you, Solomon, but 200 for the sake for those who take care of its fruits. The man says, you who dwell in the gardens, companions, are listening for your voice. Let me hear you. You who dwell in the gardens, they're listening for your voice. In other words, your marriage instructs other people. Did you know that? Your marriage instructs other people in the community, in the church, and in the world. Let me hear you. Let your, let your marital love and your marriage be a display to strengthen our society and our church family. And yet, as much as your marriage has a, a role for the public good of the society and of the church, at the end of the day, verse 14, you still say, even though your marriage is for the public good, run away with me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Your marriage is to bless the community, and your marriage is also to be exclusive to just you and your spouse. You hang out with the church family, you go away, just you two. You hang out with your society and your neighbors as you bless your neighbors, you go away, just you two. Marriage is both. It's communal building, and it's private, and you need to do both. Now, let's go back to 5 through 7 as I close here. Let's see if we can close with this thought. Um, Look at verse 6. So love cannot be conquered. The the ocean can't take it out. Love can't, or money can't buy love. Um, It's permanent. It's sealed. But I want to focus on just this last phrase of verse 6. Love's flames are fiery flames. And then what what does it say after that? What kind of flame? A what? Read it. What kind of flame? In verse 6, 8, 6. A what? Say it again. An almighty flame. Almighty? 
What's almighty? Who's almighty? I mean, only God is almighty. How is this love almighty? Another translation says the love of the Lord or Yahweh's love is a mighty flame. What does it mean? I, I thought we were talking about marriage love between, between you and your spouse, between me and my wife. What do you mean almighty love? What do we mean here? Here's what we mean. We see that it's, if it's almighty love, who does it come from? God, the almighty one. God has almighty love, and then God inserts his marital passion into every earthly marriage. You get that? You don't have to be Christian to, to have this marital love. The, the, the magnetism, the, the, the husband and wife, they're like magnets, right? They just keep coming back together. Why? God's love in heaven, the Trinitarian love of God, the marital love of God, that, that covenants is poured into every human so that they desire and get married. This love is so powerful because it's not just human love. This love finds its roots in the Almighty One. This is why you don't awaken love until it's time. Because the power of this love is so strong, the magnetism is so strong that it's overwhelming. It's divine. Your love for your spouse is an echo and an expression of the divine love that God has for the other members of the Trinity and even for the world, for His covenant people, actually, in particular. That's how powerful this love is. And so, this divine flame can and must be enjoyed in the world today. That's why we fight for marriage. Why do we keep saying marriage is between one man and one woman, and we fight for that? And that intimacy should be within marriage. Because we're talking about divine love here. We're talking about bliss. We're talking about joy. We're talking about happiness. So the, the divine flame that finds expression in your earthly marriage is not just good news. It is the good news. It is the gospel. The marital love that you experience, Christian or non-Christian, that love is an expression of the gospel that God loves his people and sends his son to die for their sins to enter into a covenant relationship with them. So this is... Your marriage is a picture of the gospel. Don't we know that from the Old Testament? Hosea 1 through 3, Ezekiel 16, Ephesians 5 in the New Testament. I have those verses here. I'm not going to read them. But marriage is a picture of divine love of God for his people, right? And that is what your marriage represents. And then if you go to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 19, if, marriage is a, if, if your spouse is like, if your wife is like the promised land, and your husband is like the temple, and the consummation is the celebration of eating and drinking milk and honey in the promised land, then what does the Bible end with? When Jesus comes again, we have the marriage supper of the, of the Lamb. So Revelation 19 says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation 21.2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible begins with marriage, and the Bible ends with marriage. It begins with the mar uh, marriage in Eden. It ends with a marriage in the new Eden. And so, in this marital love, we experience our marital love as an echo and expression of God's. If you're not a Christian, let me close with this. Jesus, God's love for you is expressed in Christ dying for you. God wants you to be 
at the marriage feast. But to get there, you're a sinner who deserves to be locked out of the marriage feast. But if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, he's the only one who died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can be saved. You will celebrate in the marriage feast of the Lamb with us forever and ever and ever. God is inviting you today to that marriage feast by repenting from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, not your own good works, not even your own religious works, not even your own, your own church works, but God's grace alone. If you're married, the brokenness and sin in your marriage has affected your marriage in the past. I have bad news for you. It's going to continue to affect your marriage even after you heard a Song of Songs message. So what do you need to do? Keep going back to the marital love of heaven. And let God's love transform you and forgive you and cleanse you and grow you because as you fail and fail again in your marriage, God's grace will keep coming. It cannot be quenched by the oceans. That flame is almighty and it will come to save you. And like we sang, this deep, deep love of Christ will lead you upward and leave you, lead you homeward to your glorious rest above in the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let's praise God for this marital grace. Let's pray. Father, whether we're single or married, we pray that you would help us to pause and ponder the marital bliss and marital love of this couple here so that we celebrate and enjoy true marital love. Because whether we're single or married right now, divorced, widowed, whatever, wherever we are, we are, if we're Christian, part of the marriage feast, the ultimate true marriage. So may we celebrate that marriage and may that inform our singleness, our marriages, and our community life as a church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.